Today's scripture reading comes to us from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also ascended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The word of the Lord. It is so good to be back together again uh, this Sunday. Um, So last Sunday, we had the all-church retreat at uh, Dave and Sharon's in uh, beautiful Palisade, Minnesota, on the banks of the mighty Mississippi. And so about 40 of us were there gathered, and, uh, and when we were up there, we talked about what we've been talking about here for the last several weeks, grace. And if there ever was a watchword for the Christian faith, uh, one word that we want to be known for, it is grace. But grace is hard, because grace cuts against our natural tendency, I think our deep ingrained tendency to prefer a world that operates according to the principles of ungrace. A world where what is received is what is earned. A world where rewards or punishments are doled out based on whatever our demerits or merits may be. Grace for me, maybe, but not grace for thee. A world based on ungrace is a world divided. That's the truth that, that Paul lifts up time and time again in the first three chapters of Ephesians, is that the world before grace was a world divided. How before Christ, the most natural thing in the world was division. Division between Jew and Gentile, which itself was just one manifestation of the myriad of ways that divisions shape the world. And we hear about division, and and we look around, and we go, yeah, that makes sense. 
we're a country divided, and, and there's many different ways we can slice it and dice it. One of the more interesting ones that, that I've encountered over the past several months is, is one given by this journalist. His name is Chris Arnande, and he's sort of a freelance journalist. who He's driven around uh, the, the country, um, rural Ohio, you know, Pennsylvania, uh, places that you call, you know, Trump country. And his theory is that we're divided, you know, between what he calls the front row kids and the back row kids, kind of putting it in terms of a classroom, right? The front row kids are the kids who are tuned in. Uh, they're going to be successful. The system works for them. And then there's the back row kids who are like, what am I doing here? I just want to get out. But it's just another way to say, to another way to highlight that we are deeply divided along ideological lines. And, and surveys show now that, that people are much more accepting of their children marrying across religious lines than they are political ones these days. It used to be a Protestant marrying a Catholic was a big deal. You know, I, my, I just asked my parents, you know, that was, that was a big deal. It, it, was, it was sort of made some people grumpy that that, that was happening when it, when it, when it happened. But now a, a Democrat marrying a Republican, that's a scandal. Perish the thought. Such is the world we live in. But we're not just divided as people between each other, right? There's a division that we experience internally as well, that we are divided within ourselves, that we're divided between what we hold to be our highest aspirations and values, sort of our ideal self, and then the actual self that we look at in the mirror, between who we want to project that we are to the world and who we know that we are deep down at the end of the day. So we're divided. We're divided externally. We're divided internally. And in our fallen state, division is, it, it's natural. It comes easily. Unity is unnatural. And it's hard. And that's why we see so much more division than we do of unity. But Paul's message in Ephesians 1 through 3, right before our passage this morning, is that In Jesus Christ, God has revealed this big secret that includes the whole universe. It's a mystery that's been hidden for the ages, but God has made it known in and through Jesus Christ. And and that mystery is that it was God's plan all along to unite everything in Christ Jesus by grace. To remake this shattered world through the work of his son. To to unite everything that's been divided. You know, he's saying that, 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 that... That a world of ungrace, everything is pushing apart. But a graced world, Christ is is embracing everything and bringing it back together. And so for Paul, he thinks nowhere should this unity, this coming togetherness, be more manifest than in this community called the church because Christ is the head. And if he's the head, he's the brains of the operation, the body will operate according to the directives of the head, that we're going to grow up into that. And so one of the marks of a true Christian and the true church is that we are uniters and not dividers, which makes a a sad commentary on the state of contemporary American Protestantism, that we're most concerned about what divides us, about what makes us, you know, sort of special and keeps us separate, and and we're more focused on that and less concerned about what our common cause and common identity and common purposes might be. And this is a scandal, and it's made 
no less a scandal than the fact that we just look at it and go, well, that's just the way it is, and shrug our shoulders. Our, our apathy has nothing to do with how scandalous this is to Christ. Because this unity was hard purchased. It was hard won through the cross. Unity with God and unity with each other. And, and, and so one of our main jobs, and Paul says it right here, he says, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. It says it right in verse 3. But another way we could translate it would be to diligently guard, diligently protect the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So one of our most pressing goals then as Christians is a defensive action, to guard something that's been given to us. It's to play defense regarding our own unity. And, and unity is not something that we achieve ourselves or we manufacture for ourselves. No, our unity in Christ is a gift of grace that we must defend. Yes, you know, from outside attack, but most importantly from the inside, right? If unity gets destroyed, it's almost always an inside job. The greatest threat to Christian unity isn't outside the church, it's inside. And so Paul's message today in this magisterial passage, if if you talk about New Testament passages, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 has so much in it. It it is such a, a rich smorgasbord of teaching about Christian unity. And so if we want to think, what does this mean? What does this look like? How, 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 how can we participate in this and do this? Sit down with this passage. Meditate on it. It is a rich feast with which the Spirit wants to feed us. And so there's, there's five dimensions of unity that we see here this morning I want to touch on. First is the character that we need for unity. And then it's the theological foundation of our unity, the source of our unity, the equipment that we, God gives us for our unity, and lastly, the goal of unity. What is God doing? All right, so first is, is the character of unity. And this is extremely important. Because if, if we want to walk worthily, or live worthily and defend our unity, then it requires developing certain virtues, certain habits of the heart, a certain kind of character. And Paul highlights here four Christian virtues that are essential for this task of unity and community. And the first is humility. And we hear humility and we think sort of, okay, duh, of course. But if you were a first century Christian convert from the world of paganism, this would have sounded like madness. Because humility was not a virtue, it was a slander. Calling someone humble was not a compliment. It was an insult. To be humble was to be someone who had been humiliated. It was to be debased, cowed, you know, sort of bullied into submission by circumstance or status, right? Slaves were humble. It's not a stretch to say that Christianity redeemed humility and made it a virtue. And it's not hard to see why, because to be humble is to be like Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It's to carry around the attitude of a servant, because that's what Jesus did, thinking not first of ourselves and our needs, but the needs of others. 
Humility, then, is the posture of, of, of a soul not turning in on itself, but opening itself up to the world. C.S. Lewis gave the classic definition of humility when he said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. But when I said that C.S. Lewis said that, I looked up the quote to make sure, and actually that's Rick Warren who said that. Uh, But it gets attributed to C.S. Lewis 99% of the time. But that was in The Purpose Driven Life. Rick Warren, it was good. But but C.S. Lewis says something even, I think, more profound in mere Christianity about humility. He says, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble person, he will be what most people call now uh, nowadays call humble. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that uh, of course he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you had said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too. At least nothing, whatever, can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Clive Staples Lewis, dropping, dropping the mic. So there's humility. And the next virtue that Paul lifts up for unity in community is gentleness, which some of the older translations render as, as meekness. And this virtue, it's always been one that has been difficult for me to understand because when I think of meekness, I think of a kind of general mousiness. You know, sort of someone who's quiet and cowed and, 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 and sort of... Uh, like the character I think of who embodies this mousiness, this perverted sense of meekness, is um, if you've ever seen the movie Office Space, there's a character called Milton. And Milton is the one where they, they keep moving his desk around everywhere. Like they won't fire him, but they just keep pushing his desk further and further away. And so Milton is always complaining, but he's going, I, I told them if they move my desk again, I, I, and, and, you know, I'm going to complain and I'm going to burn the building down. And, and, and so Milton is this not meek character, but, but this sort of pathetic quietness. And of course, this is not the kind of meekness Paul is talking about. This word gentleness, it it, it conveys this kind of sense of of geniality. Someone who the the kids would say today is chill, right? Kind of the opposite is that person has no chill. Well, a, a gentle person has chill in spades, Right? It's, it's someone who makes a point of, of they try to work and play well with others. So it doesn't mean that they never get mad or, or upset or go along to get along, but, but it's not majoring in minors, and it's, and it's making a point to not raise your voice or raise the temperature of a situation. And so being gentle means that, that you sort of, I think of it as, you specialize in putting out fires instead of lighting them. And so unity re- requires setting aside our our propensity to do conflict in a conflictual way. So be humble, be gentle, be be other-oriented, and be chill. And the next virtue Paul says you're going to need for unity is patience. KJV is much better on this. It says long-suffering. Long-suffering. That's what patience is. You suffer for a long time when you are patient. 
But it's, it's more than putting up with people's stuff forever. I think maybe forbearance is a little bit more like putting up with people's stuff forever. But patience, long-suffering, it's like don't be a revenge seeker. Paul says in, in Corinthians, right, love is patient. Love is kind. It keeps no record of wrongs, right? A patient person is a person who doesn't seek to sort of settle scores. Patience is what I see when I see my two older boys fighting, my oldest son, Kyle, and my youngest, my middle son, Peter. And Kyle could squash Peter like a bug if he wanted to, but most of the time, Peter is actually the one who lashes out and hits and scratches. I mean, you know, he's a survivor. Uh, And Kyle, 99% of the time, he just stands there and he takes it. And, And he just tells him to stop instead of punching back and pouncing upon him and squishing him. And so that's one element of patience, especially from a position of power. We don't take revenge. We respond. We don't react. And there's this other aspect of patience that you could call stick right? That you don't give up or quickly throw in the towel in the face of difficulties, particularly in relationships. And in the church, it's, it's easy to walk away, right? Conflict happens. Guess what? We're a, you know, a religiously free country. There's another church down the block, probably 10 of them, where you can you know, do away with these difficult people who you don't want to do conflict with. And so patience is hard because it means that we are willing to deal with short-term discomfort in order to experience long-term intimacy. So humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance, putting up with people, our brothers and sisters in love for a long time. And I would say all these virtues that Paul gives us, they're relationally oriented. If you want to do life with people over a long period of time, you need to cultivate these virtues, otherwise you won't make it, because people are difficult. Look in the mirror. Right? I think one of the things you learn as you get older is just what a difficult person you are, right? That, and you become sort of more and more set in, in those difficulties and less hopeful about them changing in the future. You are who you are. And it's a wonder that anyone sort of can, can put up with us. We're temperamental, we're moody, we're prideful, we're brash, we're ornery, we're selfish, needy, withdrawn, passive-aggressive, you name it. But if we are to guard unity instead of letting these aspects of our humanity destroy it, we are going to need humility, gentle, patience, forbearance in spades, and we're going to need to receive it just as much as we give it to other people. All right, so those are the virtues of Christian unity. But, but, but then Paul moves on to the foundations of our unity, sort of the, the theological foundation of, of what holds us together. And what we hold together in common. And so if you, you were to look at, at verses 4 through 6 of this passage, uh, many scholars think that this is an early Christian creed or hymn, right? That Paul is borrowing something here and putting it in the text that his congregation would have known of because it was something that they said or sung um, as they gathered regularly. A sort of a reminder of, hey, this is who we are. This is what we believe. And something to note is that when we look at these Uh, three verses, verses four through six, this word one is used seven times. And so again, it just underscores that unity is the theme of this letter, and unity is not an incidental add-on extra to the Christian faith. It's right there at the center. 
Christian faith, Christian witness, Christian mission. It's at the core of of our beliefs and who we are and, and how we're called to live in this world. And so Paul says there's one body and one spirit. I mean, the first thing that hold us together is, is we all belong to Christ. He's the head of the body of the church. And, and while we all might not believe exactly the same things, we're all gathered around and walking towards the same center. To put it as switch metaphors, we're all planets sort of orbiting the same sun. And we're all breathing the same breath, right? The ancients thought of life in terms of body and spirit, you know, matter and spirit. And so something had life and it was living if it was a body that was breathing. And so the idea is that the body of Christ is filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the air that we breathe. This is the source of our faith and our life. And there's one hope. We're all looking to the horizon for the same thing. Resurrection life, life that is more powerful than death, forgiveness that is more powerful than sin, love that is stronger than hatred, unity that is stronger than division. Right? We, we, we need hope. We need to be able to look forward to something and not just look around at the mess that the world is and go, this is all there is. This is all there's ever going to be. You do that, you get, you get hopeless, you get depressed, everything falls apart. But to have this resurrection hope is to say that things, they might get worse, but eventually, by God's grace, they will be made right. So there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord. This, if you were to say, what's the early, what do the earliest Christians believe? This was their earliest creed, confession of faith. Jesus is Lord. He's supreme. Which, N.T. Wright, a, a British New Testament scholar and others have pointed out, when you say Jesus is Lord, implicitly you're saying something else. Caesar is not. So you're pledging your allegiance to Christ above all other kings or powers or principalities who would say that you need to say they're supreme. One faith, which means not so much here a sort of a developed body of doctrine, but, but something more akin to a common Act a common commitment to discipleship. Commitments for Christians were those who had made a decision with their hearts and their lips and their lives to trust in Jesus. One baptism, one door of entrance into the fellowship of the church. It passes through the water of baptism where we claim the promises of God for us and our children. And one God and Father of all. And I love what uh, uh, the commentator William Barclay says on this. He says, In that phrase, God and Father of all, the love of God is forever enshrined. The greatest thing, the unique thing about the Christian God is not that he is king, not that he is judge, but that he is father. The Christian idea of God begins in love. Right, so in this hymn, we have the foundations of our unity, the objective foundations of our unity. This is what we hold in common. This is the faith and the faithful one who binds us together. All right, so we've seen the character required for unity. We've seen the theological foundations of our unity. But at the center of it all is Jesus Christ. Paul says that Christ is the one who has given us grace according to the measure of his gift And then he says, is it not written or does it not say? And then he gives this, what is a very confusing quote from Psalm 68 about ascending and descending. He says, 
this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. And then there's a little parenthetical where he's trying to make it clear. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now, it's not totally clear at all what Paul is talking about here. If the descent is the incarnation or if it's something like we say in the creed, Christ descended into hell and on the third day he rose again. And if the ascent is resurrection or if it's, you know, like the ascension, ascension that happened after the resurrection appearances post-Easter. But whatever it is, we can really get at the heart of what Paul is talking about here. If we look, he's quoting Psalm 68, I think, uh, verse 18. But he makes a little tweak to what the psalm says. And, and in this little tweak is all the difference in the world. In the original, it says that God ascends up. It's sort of like ascending up a mountain. Mount Zion or Mount Sinai. And, 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 and God is victorious. He's defeated his enemies. And so he's got all these captives whom he has defeated in his train. And so the picture is God ascends the mountain, sits on his throne, and God receives tribute from the people who have been take, taken captive, right? It's like, I have conquered you. So now give me your gifts. Pay me your tribute. But Paul tweaks it just a little bit. And instead of God ascending to receive gifts, Paul pictures Jesus as ascending in order to give gifts. So originally, Psalm 68, God ascends and receives. And here in Ephesians, God ascends, Christ ascends to give, to give gifts. Here, I'm going I'm to quote William Barclay again. He says, in the Old Testament, the conquering king demanded and received gifts from men. In the New Testament, the conqueror Christ offers and gives gifts. That's the essential difference between the two Testaments. In the Old Testament, God is a God who demands. In the New Testament, God is a God who gives. In the Old Testament, God is a jealous God who demands and insists on tribute. In the New Testament, a loving God who pours out his love and gives all that he has to give. That indeed is the message of good news. And while I wouldn't draw quite the same sharp distinction between the two Testaments as Barclay, I think he's right to note that in just this tiny tweak of a quote of scripture, we see all the difference in the world. Right? That the good news is a world under grace and not under the law. That Christ is the source of our unity because in him our loving God has given us all he has to give. And so when it comes to unity, Jesus Christ and the good news about him stand right where they should be, at the center of everything. All right, so we've seen the character we need for unity, the, the, the doctrinal foundations of that unity, Christ as the author and enabler of our unity, the one who gives us the gifts we need to live into that unity. And there's two more things I want to briefly touch on. And, and the fourth is sort of the equipment God gives us for unity. So Paul pictures Jesus like Santa Claus. He ascends up in order to give gifts to his people. But the fascinating thing is when Christ is giving gifts. He's not giving sort of spiritual gifts like we generally think of. If you've ever, sometimes if you grew up in the church, you've done like a spiritual gift inventory. So you've seen, am I an encourager or do I have the gift of faith or hospitality? You know, these are the gifts that God gives. And, and that's everywhere. Absolutely. God giving spiritual gifts. But here, the gifts that God gives aren't spiritual gifts to individuals. The gifts that God gives to the community are 
people. People, he says. He gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And so Christian ministry is one of the gifts that God gives to his people in order to equip them for the job of unity. And there's so much that I could say about each one of these roles and their offices, their history, sort of how they've been neglected and recovered, but that's another sermon. But suffice it all to say that Paul's point in lifting up these leadership roles in the church is he's stressing that the church does not exist for the sake of professional Christians, right? People who get paid to do this stuff, people like yours truly. The church does not exist for professional Christians, but professional Christians exist for the church. And so our job as as pastors or elders or, or leaders is to provide everyone in the congregation with the equipment, the training, the example, the knowledge, the practices, the discipline you need in order to fulfill your God given purpose to build up the body. Right? My job is not to do ministry for you, my job is to prepare you for your ministry, our ministry. As a job, my, my, my job is to equip you for ministry. And so what that means and looks like for each and every one of you in your own situation, life, circumstances, your skills, your talents, your aptitudes, your sort of spheres of influence, figuring that out is, is one of the fun things that we get to do together. And seeking to answer this question, how can you minister best in your context in order to build up the body? Because you, each and every one of you, has a ministry. It says it right here. Do you believe that? Figuring out what that might be, that's essential to our work as uniters. So that's the equipment we get. And lastly, we get to the whole point. What, what, what is the whole point of all of this work? All of this equipping and training, at least the last thing I want to touch on. The goal of Christian unity is maturity. If I were to say, don't be a baby, you would think, you know, usually someone would say that to a kid growing up when he or she is acting immature. Act your age. Right? And so one of the goals in being a parent or that our parents had for us is, is that they would help shape us into mature people, mature adults. It's a really hard job. It takes wisdom and patience and humility and gentleness and forbearance. Those all sound really familiar. You know, if I, if I tell my one-year-old son, stop acting like a baby. That isn't good parenting. That's just cruel. I may have said that before, but always, always in jest. Because he's supposed to act like a baby. He's a baby. Developmentally and maturity-wise, that's where he is. So he's still in the place where he needs to be babied. But I don't want him to be in that place forever. Right? We want him to develop and mature to whatever extent that he can. Which means stretching him beyond what's comfortable right now. And so maturity is something that's interesting in the church because we want to be always be a nurturing place, right? We want this to be a place of nurture. But we also want it to be a place where we grow and we mature. Which means that sometimes things get uncomfortable and sometimes things get awkward. But you can't grow if you never go through an awkward stage, right? Like, like 
it would be no good if we lived our lives forever in late elementary school, which those are some of the nicest kids in the world, right? They're just the best. Like, fourth and fifth graders are such good kids because they're just mature enough that we can really enjoy interacting with them as adults, but they're not, like, jaded enough that we sort of get frustrated with them in the same way that we do adults, but you've got to go through those awkward junior high years. And the church needs to be that place for Christians. We, we need to be a place where we're nurtured, but also where growth can take place because the world needs mature Christians. And Paul says that the goal of Christian unity is that we would measure up to the full stature of Christ. That's, that's, that's a high bar to grow up to. I, I, I think of, uh, you know, some people have these growth charts in their houses. Maybe you have them. See how high kids have grown I remember growing up, Ken and Teresa Parsons, they had on one of the inside of their door frames, they, they would measure their three kids, and you'd see, that they would, and they had their heights at the top, and so you'd get to see these kids, when are they going to catch and surpass their mom and dad? And so it was crazy to see them growing up towards the height of their parents. And here is Paul saying that the goal for Christians is not to sort of measure yourself down. Go like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm taller than that person, so I'm doing good, and that's always the temptation is to measure ourselves and then look down at who we're better than. God, it feels really good when you can do that. You can feel very self-righteous when you do that. But that's not what Christ has for us. He says, look, look, look at that line at the top. You're going to measure up to that, and you go, I could never be that tall. It's like telling a two-year-old that they're going to be six feet tall one day. But Paul says that, that by the grace of God, you will measure up to the full stature of Christ. And when we grow up, we'll be the kind of people who speak the truth in love. And that's what the world desperately needs at this moment, truth and love. Right? There's enough lies and hatred to go around. Plenty of people who are really into speaking hard truths with no love. Or those who think that being loving means never sharing inconvenient truths. It's hard to get the balance right. But that's why maturity is so desperately needed. Because when we're doing it right, we'll find that we'll be growing and and finding our place, and and not just growing individually, but growing together. Friends, this is one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. This is hard stuff. This is important stuff. And without grace, we are lost. We cannot do it. But the good news is that each of us has been given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift for the hard work of unity. To develop the character of unity founded on the doctrines of unity, using the equipment of unity, pursuing the goal of unity, all with Christ at the center. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.